Welcome to the Punks in Pubs podcast. My name is Liam Bird and I hope you're all very well. Right, before we get on to this week's episode, I have a favour for you all to do for me. Uh, can you all go, that right this moment, and I mean right now, go to the podbiblemag.com, that's podbiblemag.com, scroll down and click on the link that says vote for your favourite. On that page will be loads of other very well-known podcasts, but I don't really care about them. What I want you to do is scroll down to the bottom of the page where it says independent podcasts and then vote for punks in pubs. If you do that right now, you will have me off your back i won't be bugging you for the rest of the week asking you hey have you voted yet so do me a favor go to that website and go vote for punks and pubs actually you know what let's do it right now so go to podbiblemag.com right now and i'll wait it really will only take two minutes and then we will start back up the podcast so i'll be back in two minutes i'll even play you a little bit of background music while you go vote uh, so it is podbiblemag one word dot com so that's p-o-d-b-l-e-mag m-a-g dot com click the link that says vote for your favorite scroll down to the bottom of the page and vote for punks in pubs right okay i will see you in two hello My name is Elder Price, and I would like to share with you the most amazing book. Hello, my name is Elder Grant. It's a book about America a long, long time ago. It has so many awesome parts. You simply won't believe how much this book can change your life. Hello, my name is Elder Green. I would like to share with you this book of Jesus Christ. Hello, my name is Elder Young. Hello, did you know that Jesus lived here in the USA? You can read all about it now. Hello, in this nifty book, it's free. No, you don't have to pay. Hello, hello, my name is Elder Smith. And can I leave this book with you for you to just peruse? Hello, hello, hello. I'll just leave it here. It has a lot of information you can really use. Hello. Hi. My name is Jesus Christ. You have a lovely home. Hello. It's an amazing book. Bonjour. Hola. How? Me llamo Elder White. Are these your kids? This book gives you the secret to eternal life. Sound good? Eternal life with Jesus Christ. It's super fun. Hello. And if you let us in, we'll show you how it can be done. No thanks. We're sure. Oh, well. That's fine. Cunningham. That's not how we do it. You're making things up again. Just stick to the approved dialogue. Elder, show it! Hello! Hello! My name is Elder Cunningham! And we would like to share with you this book of Jesus Christ. Hello! Hello! Hello. Just take this book! It's free! For you and me! 
for doing that. If you didn't do that, what the fuck? What's your issue? Why are you being a cunt? Shame, shame. Help us out. Go vote. Right, let's talk about episode 47 with myself and Tim. Tim is a journalist from America. He has co-written best-selling memoirs uh, such as Duff McKenzie of Guns N' Roses and Paul Stanley of Kiss. He's also written for Playboy magazine, but I'm not going to talk to him about any of that, even though I probably should had, uh, but we just kind of ran out of time. Uh, what I wanted to talk to him about, and the reason that we did speak, was about his book called Burning Down the Haas, a book that exposed the secret history of punks in East Germany and how the dreaded secret police, the Stasi, targeted them and made their lives living hell. In this episode, you will hear Tim talk about the ordeal that these punks had to go through, like being beaten by cops, imprisoned for no reason, and sent to reform camps just because of the music that they like to listen to and how they looked. You'll also hear how the church supported the punk movement in East Germany. Tim will also explain how the punks of East Germany, that actually include a member of Rammstein, who fought back and played their role in the underground movement that helped to bring down the Berlin Wall. Away from punk, I discovered why an American wanted to go to East Germany in the first place in the 80s, and Tim relives how going to a British pub for the first time uh, made him wonder if he was going to get into a fight or not. I will speak to you after this chat. For now, enjoy me and Tim in a pub in London for episode 47. Speak to you in a bit. Just the same as if it were spelled the British way. Perfect. Because yeah. um, sometimes I, I'm dyslexic, so sometimes yeah. I will fuck up people's <laughs> names. And so um, now I just politely try and ask them, oh, can you just uh, can you tell me yeah, yeah, yeah. your last name? So we are sat in, I suppose we could call it a proper British pub, but I mean, there is no such thing anymore. Um, this, is, this is how it is. We were, sorry, in front of me is Tim Moore. How are you, Tim? How's it going, Liam? I'm well, mate. Uh, so we were in a hotel lobby, and we thought we won't go there. And then we were going to go to a pub, but there's a pub right next to the Savoy, because that's how we're rolling at the moment. <laughs> uh, and we were like, let's not go there. It's too wanky. So we've come down the road a little bit, and we found this nice little uh, pub. We're in a nice little booth. It looks authentic. What do you think, Tim, to the place? I like it. I like the booths. We don't, we don't get uh, booths and pubs in the States. But I think in, the, in America, you have a better beer culture. So, like... If I go into a bar in, in let's say, um, I was recently in Philadelphia. So if I went to a bar in Philly, mm. I think I could like just talk to someone and no one would go, "What the fuck are you doing talking to me?" Where about well, some bars? 
in an English accent probably actually <laughs> but if I had an American accent uh, might not but I think in London if you just rocked up to the bar and just spoke to someone they would probably punch you and go what the fuck you want uh, it's a funny thing you know you, you're talking to a guy who lived in Germany for a long time too and one of the things I like about uh, British pubs which is the same as American pubs is that people do stand around right and in Germany there's not really a culture of standing around the bar you sit down and they do have the shared table thing which is cool and can create some social atmosphere but but standing there's nothing like standing around a bar for socialising I love that especially when you get to know the bar person behind and if you tip them well they're there for the rest of the night <laughs> and uh They'll, they'll throw in a few shots for you as well, which is uh, fantastic. So, um, some some people might not know who uh, your background is. Yeah. So, we're going to explore a little bit about that. But I just want to quickly uh, talk about the reason that we are uh, having the chat today because you've written a book uh, about East Germany and how the punks played a part in bringing down uh, the Berlin Wall. Yeah, yeah. I mean, obviously, a topic that everyone uh, knows about. Uh, so, <laughs> so yeah, right, yeah, yeah. It's called Bur- burning down the heart. Uh, I've got the German right, Huss. You pronounce it, it sounds the same as the English word, and I find that the, the way to show that it's a German word is just lower your voice, right? So you go, oh. burning down the house. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but we're going to get into that in a second. But being on a book tour, I mean, how punk rock is it? Like, do you go into like a Waterstones and just start ripping up Kardashian self help books and go, fuck you? you know, what the, the, what the, you been doing? The coolest book tours are actually in Germany. Yeah, because there you're always booked into concert venues. At least in my case, I was always booked into concert venues. So you're going in, and uh, you you stay in the artist's department. In some cases, and those are great places. You know, we stayed in a, I stayed in a place in Jena, which is down in the south part of old East Germany, and the artist's department was a series of rail cars. So I had a rail car. You know, after the show, walked out to the rail car, and they were still on the tracks and everything. It was yeah. great. So there was really cool stuff um, in Germany when you did that way. Yeah. I mean, my issue with being stu- stuck in a, a rail car in Germany is they've got a history of using yeah. trains for a very bad reason. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think this was a spur that was not attached to any main lines heading east. That's good, so. that's good to know. That's good to know. <laughs> oh, it's gone dark really quickly. Um, so we're what, gonna- what a surprise that uh, you give a, a give an Englishman a beer and he starts talking about the war. Yeah. <laughs> It's in our DNA. We can't. We can't. It's been many years, but we're still we're still harping onto it. Um, so we're going to talk about the book, and we're going to talk a little bit about East Germany uh, in a second. But I'm kind of fascinating how a guy from America ends up in Germany. The the way I ended up in Germany was a complete lark. I was just um, I grew up typical sort of clueless American in the '80s under Reagan and Bush, and I wasn't. I wasn't politically sophisticated or anything. I mean, I had some vague sense that I didn't really like the U.S. under under Reagan, but I wasn't really politically focused. Didn't have a lot of historical knowledge. I mean, uh, political knowledge. And but I got a chance. I got a. I got a chance to to move to Berlin two years after unification. And so it seemed like okay, this is cool. It's um, if if it was ever going to be a place where one of those mythical third ways was going to be found, it seemed like maybe maybe Berlin would be the place at that time, or East Europe at that time. Well, so were you already um, like studying German? Or? No, I didn't speak a word. Yeah. I, I, I didn't. Um, I was a typical stupid American. I, mean, I didn't even know. For me, Germany and Oktoberfest were the same thing. I mean, I thought. I mean, I thought I'd get off the plane in, in Berlin and everybody'd be wearing lederhosen. I mean, really had no idea. Yeah. And. Uh, yeah, so instead I ended up in this high-rise apartment that looked like something out of all the stereotypes that we grew up with in the 80s, this high-rise uh, block, and there was all the rumors about the skinheads at the time, and it was right next to the old East German or East Berlin Zoo, and so at night 
you'd hear the the animals howling. It was it was a dorm for foreign students, right? And uh, so there was the rumors about skinheads. Were, it was something really um, serious, yeah. And and actually, that was the the only time I ever had one of those uh, waking nightmares was in my first few weeks in Berlin. Like I said, it was it was it, it fit all these stairs. It was the greatest place I'd ever seen. And You've been to Edinburgh? <laughs> yeah, well, well, the funny thing is you, 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 your perception changes so much. You know, I didn't go home at all for the first three years. So where's home, and, sorry? Uh, Baltimore. Baltimore. Uh, the okay, east coast yeah, of the yeah. U.S., yeah. yeah. And um, then when I did finally go back and I took a train along the east coast and I was looking out the window and thinking, holy shit, this looks just like East Germany. It's got the same sort of post-industrial Rust Belt look of East Germany. So your perception changes over time. But when you first go to a place like this and you have expectations that are built in from living in the 80s in the U.S., and it fits the stereotype, right? And so, yeah, I remember one night I, I woke up because I, ha- I was having a dream that on the walk to the to the high rise I was um, attacked by uh, skinheads, and I was I was trying to scream for help, and I didn't know the German word for help, so I just had this silent scream coming out, and that's how I woke up, right? I mean, that was it was very extreme to think you're going to Oktoberfest and wake up in this this atmosphere, <laughs> but um, I got really lucky because there was this unbelievable scene happening in, in, in the central parts of uh, East Berlin at that time, and I just kind of stumbled into it. And the, there were all these squats. At the time, I think there were over 100 squats just in the central districts of, of Berlin alone, uh, East Berlin. And um, there was, behind all this seemingly gray facades, there was just this unbelievable, colorful, energetic scene taking shape. And it was it was... It was more. It was like some I'd never seen anything like it. And I just I instantly knew okay, I'm going to stay here. I was supposed to be there for one semester. I was like, I'm staying. And uh, I ended up getting to know some people who were involved in the in the music scene. And uh, so the easy thing to do was start working as a DJ. I was a, I was a music head anyway, and DJing is an easy way to to get by. And everything was so cheap then. So I ended up staying instead of a semester. I was staying basically for. Uh, ended up staying most of the the decade of the 90s working as a DJ and so to slowly get to your answer um, (laughs) um, uh, the the, the scene that was happening that was just bursting was a lot of it had been set up by former East German punks so a lot of the squats uh, almost all the clubs and bars everything I'm sure people you know uh, or listen to your show I've been to um, Tachelis which is that really famous massive squat complex in Mitte that was squatted originally by East German punks um, and so just in the course of working in this nightlife scene I met people from the scene and there was one guy in particular he, he was a guitarist in a band called Planlos and I didn't know it at the time it, it only sort of I figured it out later when I started to go back and research it but his band was super important they've been one of the very first bands in all of East Berlin and he eventually showed me this folder that he had kept stashed under a false drawer bottom during the dictatorship and had a few snapshots of him and his friends and um, some lyric scraps. And and so this was sort of that moment of, uh, you know, the, when the light goes on. And I was like, oh, okay, so I had always been skeptical of this idea that kids in the East Block wanted McDonald's and Levi's and the Rolling Stones and Reagan said tear on the wall and the wall came down magically you know it, I didn't have the the knowledge to I didn't have any evidence to the contrary but it just it always seemed unlikely it didn't seem even to a clueless teenager that a latent desire for hamburgers could bring down a dictatorship right mm. but now here were the people here this was these were oppositional activists who had fought the dictatorship and sacrificed with their bodies you know I I heard some of the stories about how they'd been detained and interrogated. Some of them had spent time in prison. And uh, so this was, what, 25, between 25 and 30 years ago. And I, 
from that moment on, I was like, I'm going to tell the story sometime. And it was just, uh, I didn't know I was going to be a writer yet, but I knew I was going to tell the story somehow. And so then I ended up going back to New York um, and becoming a journalist. And then in about 2008 or something, I had, I was like, okay, the time is right. I'm going I'm to start putting in the proper research to do it as a book. And so then I started to circle back and look at the Stasi archives and then to really, really go about reaching out to people and interviewing them for the purpose of the book. I mean, you, you've kind of gone millions in my head of where, where I was going to go with my, my questions. Oh, sorry. But that's perfect. <laughs> we'll come back to that, though. Um, because the idea of someone who... like I always find journalists actually quite interesting because they've got a love of word and word play. And punk is a renowned for, for its... Um, uh, using words in the most like uh, beautiful poetic way. So, which one came first, then, for you? Was it the love of punk, or was it the love of, uh, or even any other music, or was it the love of words? It was a love of this scene. It was this 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 invisible scene that I thought needed to get out into the world. And you know, the funny thing is that over the course of the research, it went from something that was. Um, of sort of personal interest to me that I thought was a cool story and an interesting story to this sort of frighteningly relevant story. So, so, was, so was punk something you enjoyed before you even went to East Germany? Was it something you were... I mean, it was always part of my musical diet, but I was never a self-styled punk. Yeah. You know, I, and I, I, I got into it sort of in a way backwards. The first punk stuff I had was not the first generation stuff. It was stuff like TSOL and Minor Threat. So it was that later generation of, of punk. You know, I, I think the, the first generation of American punk, I think it was actually quite... I mean, their, their goals were pretty conventional, really. It was, they wanted to be rock stars and have major label contracts and all that. And, and it was only British punk, really, that it, that, that it becomes that, that punk philosophy, right? And that came back, again, in the States with that second generation. And that was the stuff that caught my interest a bit. But like I said, I was never a self-styled punk, even though I used to have you know, a lot of punk records. Mm. Yeah. So what were you listening to then in your like, early teens? Were you into kind of like your jazz, your soul? Or was music not really something that you... Oh, no, I've really always been a total music head. Okay. There's no mistake that I ended up as a DJ. Yeah. But uh, I was always really... Um, I had a really broad uh, ear, whatever you call it. I listened yeah, to yeah. a lot of everything. You know, I was, the early hip-hop was really exciting when I was a kid. And um, my sweet spot by the time I was... Moving towards Germany was probably sort of just indie, basically. I really liked uh, I love a lot of the uh, Manchester stuff. was really cool at the moment, and um, yeah, more sort of jangly indie stuff than than you know hard punk. Can you still like the Smiths? Is that something? That yeah, that's still... a fraud issue, isn't it? Yeah, I used to go see Morrissey a lot, and now I yeah I've, I haven't gone to see any of his recent tours. Yeah. No. Have you been to? Have you gone to like the the youth club that a lot of Smith fans go to when you're up in Manchester? I've actually never been to Manchester. Have you not? Yeah. The funny thing about it is, it's in a fucking rough area of Manchester. I can imagine. And yeah. there's always like, I've heard stories of tourists just getting mugged mm. and they're asking people, "Oh, where do you, where, where's the youth club?" And then someone goes, "Oh, it's around the corner." And then they get jacked up. Manchester's nice, by the way. Do go. It's, it's a cool. It's I mean, a cool city. I can remember coming over here in the '90s when I was living in in, in Berlin, and you know, to go record shopping or whatever, and. And there, it was a really distinct difference in atmosphere. Um, I lived in, in Berlin for, you know, six, seven years working as a DJ meeting. So I was out until the next day for most of the time in those years. And I only saw one punch thrown in all those years of late nights. Mm. And that was by an Irish guy. Um, and then you'd come to, to Britain and... Jesus Christ, man, you felt like violence could break out at any minute. <laughs> Jesus, it was really uh, daunting.
So you said you grew up in Baltimore. Um, I think Baltimore is probably best known for people listening to this podcast, probably for The Wire, I think. How was Baltimore to grow up in? Like, for, for, for a person who's clearly artistic and, and has that like, love of music and the word, what was it like to grow up in? Did, did you have to go to New York or Philly to find that kind of fulfillment? No, I mean, I didn't really... That wasn't something that, that wasn't part of my world was traveling no. to big cities like that. I mean, you, you had a lot of, back then you still had a lot of great record shops. I used to go because DC was an easy drive. So between Baltimore and DC, um, there were a lot of really good record shops, and that, that's what I haunted was the, the record shops. And there, there were a lot of really quirky, weird little shops back then that these days wouldn't be sustained. But you know, there was a, I used to go to this weird old, oldie shop in some weird part of East, East Baltimore. Um, I would go. I would definitely drive a lot to to go to record shops. that would have different things than you'd normally find in your local, you know, chain shop. But uh, it wasn't going as far afield as Philly or New York. No. So you, we kind of spoke. We touched on a little bit earlier on that when we spoke about Germany, you had a question of someone going, "Oh, there's two. There's two Germany." Yeah. What the yeah. Fuck? yeah. <laughs> Let's explain that. Yeah. How that came about. Well, we did. The, the launch for the U.S. edition of this book we did at the Rough Trade in, in New York, in Williamsburg, and they have a gallery space there, and so they, they let me use one of their galleries for a few weeks, and I put in a bunch of photos of the Eastern punks and some film clips, and just to give people a flavor of what it's like, because I think it's sometimes hard for people to picture punk in East Germany. is such a weird concept that I thought it'd be cool to let people see it, and as I was installing the exhibition together with two guys actually from the scene who came over to, to do it, and a couple of young 20-somethings came in and we were chatting as we were working on the gallery space and, and then after a while one of them says wait there used to be two Germanys and I was like wow this is going to be you know there's going to it's going to be a bit of a battle to to bring the story across in, in the States because the level of historical knowledge is, is you know compared to Britain for instance it's it's lower obviously so why do you think that is why do you think like America is so insular in its own history about everything else because America played a part in in the divide of Germany yeah sure so well I mean it's not even you could say that we're we're sort of navel gazing or whatever but Americans don't mo- don't really know their own history very well either I mean we wouldn't be in the state we're in now if people were more historically versed you know so I you know, I think if if I could tell you the answer to that I think we'd have a lot of problems solving the U.S. <laughs> <laughs> and, I mean, even yourself, though, you said like when you go to Germany, you're very naive and what you were going yeah. into. Um, so I'm, I'm I'm interested to know why Germany, because like most, if I think if you say to Americans, oh, you can go anywhere in Europe, where would yeah. you want to go? They'll either go to London or Paris. Germany, I don't think is that high, or Italy or Rome or something like that. Germany, I don't think is that high up on their list, mainly because I think a the language. And B, um, like you said, the culture is not that well known. So why yeah. why Germany then? What, what was it interesting about Germany? And especially back, talk about the culture being on not that well known. I mean, back then, my God, if you knew anything about German culture, it would just be from World War Two movies, right? Mm. And now, of course, Berlin has become such a beacon that it sounds silly to say, oh, you know. But I'm going backwards here. But if if when I, when I came back to the States after living in Berlin for that decade and I would tell people, oh, there's all this cool stuff happening and cool music and, and people would just look at me with a blank stare like, what, what, are you, what the fuck are you talking about? You know? And now Berlin's become sort of so cool that it's, no cool, it's not even cool anymore, yeah. right? But so, so it sounds ridiculous to say that, but it was, that was the case back then. And it was even more so the case, I guess, when I moved there. But it was just a coincidence in my case. I, um, I, I had taken a little bit of French in school, so in theory, I was, I, I was obsessed with living abroad. I wanted to get out. I wanted to get the fuck out. 
I, I like I said, I had some misgivings about the U.S. under Reagan. I just wanted to live somewhere else, and but I needed a, a way to do that, and uh, I got somehow I got a job. I had a one semester sort of assistant thing at the um, university in former East Berlin, and so I was like, yeah, all right, I'll go there. It seems like a cool place, and uh, like I said, I didn't know anything about it except that I was I was going to be able to get out and live somewhere else. And so that's how I ended up there. It was c- completely coincident. That's why I didn't know anything about German history. I hadn't really, at that point, I'd never really read German literature. Uh, yeah, I just just thought, okay, here's here's a way to get over there. So how quickly did you le- learn Sprechen's English? It took a it took a while to to learn German. I'll tell you that. Yeah. <laughs> um, but it, the the cool thing about German is. Um, Unlike English, if, if you know the the letters that correspond to a certain sound, it's always the same. Mm. So once you figure out the combinations, then you can you can read German really easily if you can speak it a bit. So that's what that's what it sort of snowballed for me. So I started to once I could distinguish when you get to the point where you can hear a sentence and go, I know you can divide up the sounds and go, okay, that's a word in the middle there that I don't know. Once you can recognize, separate the the sounds enough to see the various ver- the various words and know, okay, that's one I don't know. But yeah. at least then you can start to figure it out, right? So I get to that point. And then, what, and then the, the amazing thing was that thing about the about the, the correspondence of the sounds to the letters made it possible to, to start reading almost simultaneous with learning sort of basic spoken German. So then it could sort of build on each other. So I'm always interested with people who are bilingual, because I, I'm not. I'm, I'm one of those arrogant people of, well, I'm English. Everywhere else will speak English. And if they don't, I will speak slowly. And if they still don't understand me, I will trash the place until they understand me. Uh, <laughs> you skip the speak loudly oh, step. Yeah, that's yeah. right, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> do, do you find yourself, like, when, you, when, you, when you're kind of... Like German is everywhere. You like your life now is all in German. Do you find no, yourself no, dreaming? No, my German? life now is not in German. <laughs> I don't know. You, like, like, do you find yourself like dreaming in German though? Like, you have German dreams whereabouts you're speaking German. Like, you said about your dream when you first got there, but like yeah. by the night you were leaving to go back to New York, uh, back to America, like, were you dreaming in German? I would say that by the time I left, I I would think, for instance, you sometimes you think in 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 German. I mean, yeah. I. I um, but now, because I'm not immersed in German on a day-to-day basis, you know, I've been living in New York now for what twenty years, right? And so, definitely not. I don't, I don't even. I'm not even sure I call myself bilingual. I mean, I'm fluent in German. I, I translate German novels into English, but yeah. but that's not the same thing as operating in it when you're in the society, right? So I don't. I don't. I definitely don't. I don't think I dream in German at least anymore. Don't worry, that's probably going to be the most stupid question I've asked you. <laughs> uh, the second most stupid question is coming up right now. So you're saying you were DJing. Mm. Like, how did you find yourself into that position then? Because were you DJing back home? And then you were like... I mean... Because I'm guessing you didn't bring your music with you. No, that's right. I, and also, I, I hadn't really... I hadn't been a proper DJ. Uh, I, I was always a music kid, and so often I would have mixtapes that I would play at parties and that kind of thing. But, but DJing was just an easy way to, to work out the the staying in Berlin part which was my obsession and I met like I said just from hanging around in, in these worlds I'd met people who said you know you want to stay why don't you just start DJing you got you got a music you got a music collection and you're a music head so it's an easy easy thing to, to break into and you have to remember that back then it was so cheap Berlin I mean my, my apartment back then cost 80 Deutschmarks a month which was that's 50 bucks right mm. so you could I, I, you could work a couple times a month and easily cover your expenses. So it was. Uh, it's not like I had to become a, 
a famous globe charting DJ. I just had to convince a few bars to let me play music a few times a month, and I can make a go of it, you know. So, how, what kind of music were you playing then? I think it's probably um, disappointing in, to, to multiple <laughs> groups of people because it's not that uh, Teutonic techno. I wasn't doing that at all, and um, and it wasn't punk either. It was. It was pretty light. The, the scene, it wasn't as homogenous as people think. You know, there's a lot of stuff happening. The only band that came out of the scene I was involved in was this band called Stereo Total, who did this kind of kind of self-consciously goofy mix-up of rockabilly and old French stuff. And I mean, a really, a really cool band, but uh, definitely doesn't sound the way people would associate with, you know, Trezor or the, the, the famous Berlin clubs. Um, so I was doing a, you know, trip-hop and brick-pop and old soul and... Uh, Indie and there's that sort of indie electronic stuff going on back then too, the big beat stuff. Yeah. So like that, just sort of kind of light party music. So what was your go-to then? What was your go-to track? Be <laughs> like, fuck you, know, you like, watch this. Like, uh, you know, loaded by Primal Scream, something, something yeah. pretty relaxed stuff, you know. We want to be free to do what you want to do. You said like you only meant to be in Germany for one year. Less, actually, one semester. One semester. Yeah. Like now, my my head will explode in, in thinking that you could just like span that out for five years and no authorities going, where the fuck is your visa? Like how how did you how did you like get a work visa or anything like that, or is it just not something you worried about? Um, well, I don't know how to I don't know how to answer this without. without uh, <laughs> I mean. I mean, no, I don't you're, still you're suggesting you. I had a work visa. Okay. I never asserted yeah, yeah, that I had yeah, a work yeah. visa. <laughs> so a lot of and, cash in hand. You know, DJing, not to uh, incriminate myself here, but DJing tends to be a world, or at least back then, that was operating in cash. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I also have a, my, on paper, my name looks German, and so I think that avoided a lot of problems too. But also, the, the German system back then, it was, they, they just weren't double checking things very much and mm. they weren't that worried about uh, who was there and what they were doing so when you were leaving Germany then were you a bit worried because obviously you have to hand over your passport and they're like oh you should have left a fucking long time ago yeah but they never I don't know exactly what they never really stamp you in and out of Europe back then they didn't really stamp you in and out you could never tell when I'd entered and, yeah. and I would for the, I didn't go back for quite a few years at first but then I would I started once it once it was more or less a permanent situation I would try to go home for Christmas or whatever and so it wasn't like I literally didn't leave the borders of the country for that long but knowing that you you weren't there legally <laughs> um, <laughs> your words <laughs> like coming back were you like yeah. well fucking hell like I might not get in like, no I never had any there was no, never any problems no. you see so you were DJing in Germany and then you kind of hooked up with people who knew other people in the punk scene and they started telling you this story when you were listening to it that's a turn because um, their story is fascinating and like I don't think if you read it or like I said I never knew anything about this I don't know if I said that at the hotel or now uh, before but like I, I, I never knew about the, the stuff that, um, that, you, that you speak about in the book like were you listening to it and going this ain't fucking true like no one's ever going to get persecuted just because of the music they, they, they like no I mean it was 
it was clear that it was all true. Yeah. Although I will... In fact, it was almost the opposite. I, I had an idea. I sort of knew the contours of the story, and and I'd heard some of these people's experiences, but it was only when I went back later and started going through the Stasi files that I was like, holy shit, it was, it's even much worse than they were describing. Mm. And the extent to which they were persecuted and punished is... It's, it's basically inconceivable, I think, to Western from a Western perspective. And it's not like they emphasize, they didn't emphasize, oh yeah, we had it so bad, or you know, we suffered so much. Not at all. They told me these the cool stories because they, you know it was also really fun. They were involved in it because it was daring and fun. I mean, there was it was definitely. I don't mean to downplay that aspect of it, and they certainly didn't downplay that aspect of it. But then when I did go back and start researching it in earnest and looking at the Stasi files, which is like holy shit. So there might be people listening now who might not know the history of yeah. East Germany or, or who Stasi are, so the, who the Stasi were. Um, so if you just like to quickly recap and oh, yeah, right, sorry. Go, go do um, yeah, 60 so worths of history <laughs> now in two minutes. Go. Yeah, so the, the Stasi uh, was the secret police operation that, that helped prop up the dictatorship, and they were, they were notorious around the world for being effective. And, and I would say that in, in researching what they did to the punks, you can see they really were effective. And, and as far as how it affected their daily lives... So generally the police would be physically brutal and the Stasi would be more sort of psychological torture. But to just, the Western radio could be received almost everywhere in East Germany. So there was this physical barrier, the Berlin Wall, and then there was the wall that divided East Germany from West Germany along the borders of the two countries as well. But that was obviously totally permeable to radio. And so outside of a few areas in the far east of the city, like I mean the far east of the country, like Dresden, which was kind of a bowl geographically, and they called the Valley of the Clueless, almost everywhere else you could pick up Western radio. And so starting not very far behind uh, Punk's um, arrival in the West, it started to trickle across because people would hear it. I mean, the kids used to obsessively tape the John Peel show, for instance. Um, tape recorders were fairly widespread in East Germany, and then they'd copy it and pass it around to friends, and almost everyone describes the moment that they first heard the pistols. It was it was a life-changing experience for these kids, and they, you know, so life for a teenager back then, you would have gone through communist youth organizations, and then they had military training in school. They usually finished school at, in the tenth year, and then went into an apprenticeship, and then were eventually placed in a job in the planned economy that you didn't really have much of a choice in determining. And so for them, even the you know the British punks used to talk about no future and those because of the socioeconomic conditions, but those those conditions they didn't exist at all in East Germany. Their problem was almost the exact opposite of that. And so they used to talk about their problem as being um, too much future because their their whole life was sort of preordained. Some party apparatchik kind of determined the course of their life. And so what punk became was this idea of taking control of your life and trying to gain regain control of the big decisions in your life. And this was the empowering element that they took away from the scene this this DIY thing about um, you know determining your own environment and, and that was that was the sort of transformational aspect that they took from, from British punk you know, the, the American punk to go back to what we were talking about earlier the American punk wasn't very politically focused the first generation stuff a few people said oh yeah the Ramones are cool because I'd never heard of an album that didn't have any slow songs on it but it was really British punk that, that, that changed the game in East Germany X-ray specs uh, pistols all that stuff and the cool thing about it is, uh, well, let me. I'll start even. I'll start and tell you. 
the, 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 we know who the first punk in East Berlin was. It was a it was a 15 year old girl. She went by the nickname Major, and uh, she she ran across a picture of the Pistols in uh, the fall of her school year in 1977. And uh, then a few days later, heard uh, the Pistols on the radio, uh, and she was like, "This is the thing for me." And she decided to become a punk. So she, based on the few photos that she had from this West German music magazine, her old sister had, she gave herself this punk haircut. And you obviously couldn't go out and get rock and roll clothes or punk clothes in East Germany, so she had to make it all herself. She she ripped up her clothes, and you know she she grabbed the uh, chain from a toilet plunger and used that. And the way she got her nickname was she put a row of. Um, safety pins across her shoulders like epaulets you know and, and so the kids at school started, started calling her major but this, that's where the story changes from the west because she was almost immediately um, in trouble so within about six months the Stasi had opened a file on her she had just turned 16 and she was regarded by the state as an enemy of the state and so the scene then grew up for the next couple of years and they waited in major's case they waited until she turned 18 and then they, they arrested her uh, threw her in jail for a year and then at the end of her jail term she was given what's called a Berlin Fibble meaning she wasn't allowed to go back to Berlin and see her family and friends she was instead she was taken to this industrial textile facility out in the middle of nowhere and she was supposed to work there for the next five years and be sort of politically rehabilitated she ran away almost immediately and went back to East Berlin and was rearrested put back in prison for another 18 months and, um, and then at the end of that jail term they actually they shipped her off to West Germany just to take care of the problem but but so that's you're talking about the early 80s by that point right and even though they were making an example of Major and people like her at that, that stage it it didn't work so by 1982 the Stasi the secret police again um, they figured that there were more than 10,000 punks by that point in 1982 and that's in a, a country of 15 million so then it's a it's a large scale problem for them and and I think Again, the shock for me when I started to go back and look at the files was the level of paranoia that the, the secret police had about this movement. Because, you know, from the Western standpoint, like you said, it, it's provocative, yeah, but at the end of the day, it's kids with bad haircuts, basically, right? And But the Stasi saw them as, and as basically, you know, they're trying to keep everyone moving sort of on a single path, and the, the punks were really effective, sort of moving people off this path. Mm. So after my initial shock at their level of paranoia... I realized, you know, actually, they were right. I mean, the, the, they were right to perceive it as a threat. And and that threat, it carries through for the rest of the decade. So what happens with the first generation of punks is in 1983, the Stasi says, fuck this, we're, we're done, we're going to really take care of the problem. And that's when you have this incredible crackdown. And a lot of them go to prison. A lot of them get conscripted into these army units that are supposed to re-educate them politically. And the incredible thing, and the reason that I'm still in awe of these people and, and I, I'll sort of look to them as heroes for the rest of my life is is the way they reacted to that was you know like there was a band called Namalos that got thrown in jail for nearly two years because of their lyrics and they kept being asked in prison hey wouldn't you really rather just go to the west and they were like fuck you we're staying and they, the jail term was over they came out they started the band up again and they started fighting all over again and that was the thing that completely changed the, the game because then everybody else who had sort of opposition sentiment saw okay it's possible you can resist and survive you can actually do that and you won't be disappeared or whatever I mean it was it was an experiment that hadn't really been run to that extent the punks really pushed the envelope and proved that you could do it 
and so then when they start to trickle back from jail and the army and all that that's into the mid 80s and that's that's what then the fact that all the other activists see this sort of allows the protest to move out into the public eye out into the streets and it's only there that it can really sort of snowball into the the scale that can cause a revolution so so the, the lady you spoke about major yeah um they, she, she so she goes to um, a prison or an internment camp and what is her family doing at that time are they are they just towing the party line of like she she's done this to herself or are they fighting as well and then that's how like word of mouth builds up about this woman who who is fighting against this massive establishment that is the Stasi. Her family had a history of oppositional politics going back to the Third Reich, so I think there was some uh, understanding for what she was doing. Mm. And her parents did employ a, a defense lawyer for her, but it, it didn't really help. I mean, one of the main defense lawyers that some that defended punks, it turned out he was an informer for the Stasi. I mean, it was there were so many informers all over society that it was diff- difficult to get a fair shake anyway. Um, in the case of other punks... It was more, um, it wasn't that unusual for people to sort of go out on their own at a pretty young age. And, uh, yeah, it caused a lot of strife within families. A lot of punks got thrown out of their houses or um, uh, their parents would get would get swallowed up in the whole thing too. You know, your, your parents would lose their jobs or um, your siblings would get kicked out of school as well, that kind of stuff. I mean, it, was, it was seriously harsh, yeah. So in regards to, like... Because if punk is starting to thrive, and you said there's about 10,000 punks, obviously there's music bands being played. And from my understanding is that uh, if, if, if a punk band played a bar like this, the bar owner would be threatened themselves and to lose their license and yep. their jobs and be put in prison themselves. So yeah. punk, gigs are, punk gigs are not quiet. So how did they go about like, creating this environment of like underground music? Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a good point. It was, everything they were doing was totally illegal. Mm. So they couldn't, they couldn't record in studios, they couldn't get on the radio, they couldn't play, like you said, they can't play gigs in the open. And what happened was, and this is a really strange sort of marriage between the the Lutheran church and, and the punk movement, there were, there were, there were some ministers in the Lutheran church, the Lutheran church was pretty loosely organized, so there were, ministers could sort of pursue their own course to an extent, and so there were some ministers who were considered basically rogue ministers who started taking in outsider groups, and uh, that included by the dawn of the 80s punks so when the Stasi stepped in and decided we're going to take care of this problem um, and we're going to keep punks off the street uh, these ministers opened up their spaces in their churches in their church basement or some some space on the grounds and let them congregate there a couple times a week or whatever and eventually it developed into there was basically a full on uh, concert circuit taking place in these churches around the country so that that's where it all took place and that's where most kids were exposed to the fact that there was a punk scene in East Germany, right? So, and the other weird thing was, um, the church didn't. The church wasn't. A, a, it's ostensibly a safe space, right? So, in theory, security forces can't enter a church, and so you can talk about taboo topics. Uh, it turned out that there was a significant portion of the church that was also informing for the Stasi. So it wasn't the great um, defense that you would think. Um, so uh, Nominalos, for instance, well, I think I mentioned them before, they, they went to prison for almost two years for their lyrics. Those lyrics were overheard at a church concert, and an informant wrote it down, and that's how the Stasi got them. Because I'm guessing, like, if, if, if they can't go into the church, they can definitely hang outside of it. 
So how do people get out knowing that there's probably someone else watching them come out of this show, whereas they might not know it's a punk show, but they have a good inkling that it is a punk show? Because then it just becomes a paranoia of just stay at home. Like, we can do this gig in our flat, but even but then... But they can't do that because their neighbors fearful, inform exactly, on them. Yeah. fearful of your neighbor. Yeah, they did... You know, a lot of the cities in, in East Berlin were kind of... Um, empty in a way they, they've been bombed and rather than renovate the old downtown sections they would often just rebuild these high rises around the ring uh, of the city and so there was a lot of empty space within the downtowns of the, of the East Summer cities and, and punks would often uh, squat those or use them as rehearsal spaces because then there were no people around to he- overhear what they were doing but yeah I mean the, the first uh, sort of national punk festival took place at a church in 1983 in a town called Hollow, which is relatively small. And, I mean, it really was a battle to get there. The, the Stasi knew because of informants that it was going to take place, and they had police at all the train stations, not only in the city where it was taking place, but they had all, punks all over the country under surveillance anyway, so they tried to keep them from being able to get on trains in their hometowns. And so it was this bat- constant battle to sort of escape the security forces just to be able to go see a show. And the bands, they didn't travel with any instruments, so the, the minister would arrange for equipment to be there for the most part, and the bands would just kind of turn up and use all the bands to play on the same equipment that had been arranged on the on the altar. They're often playing right in the sanctuary, too. It's, it's, a, it's just a crazy scene. Germany who knew about the East German punks who were trying to support them in, in whatever way they could not really, the, the, even though it was sparked by a western phenomenon obviously it became a really eastern thing really quickly and um, the the allies in the punk scene that they, they maintained were further east so the punks really the eastern punks really rejected they were not pro-western, they weren't sort of western oriented they didn't want to be covered they actually actively avoided trying to be covered in the western media because they were afraid they'd be dismissed as simple anti-communists or, or pro-unification any of these things that they didn't they didn't want to be seen as so their, their solution was just we're not going to talk to the western press and they, I've seen Stasi reports where there'll be a Stasi informant who's shocked because once in a while a Western reporter would get wind of what was happening and show up at one of these church concerts, right? And there's reports where a, a reporter walks up and says, starts trying to talk to some of the punks and they're like, fuck you, I don't want to talk to you. Mm-hmm. And this didn't, it just didn't compute for the Stasi often because the Stasi, one of the, the shortcomings of their attempts to, to foil the scene was they kept insisting that it was a Western uh, manipulated scene. So the, they had the same impression that you're, you're expressing now. And that actually kept them from dealing with it very effectively. Um, if anything, the punks looked to Poland, Hungary, 
Czechoslovakia, Polish punk in particular was a really big influence on East German punk because the Polish situation politically they were a bit further along and, and Polish punks could operate in the open more than in East Germany and a few of the bands by the second half of the 80s some of the East German bands managed to get over and do some touring in Poland and saw the scale of what was happening over there and there were Polish bands that played shows to as big as like 10,000 people by the second half of the 80s and that sort of inspired the punks to try to take things to another level too and and that they put on some pretty major level um well you know five six seven thousand people they got up to that level by the by the end of the 80s um and it's it's at that stage too just to to make sure that people don't think that i'm sort of insisting on the importance of the punk scene and the revolution the secret police records the stasi records make clear that they regarded punk as this huge threat so in the second half of the 80s there's a report in 1988 where they're talking about the main punk activist organization and they call it the most significant activist organization because of the the scale of events they can put on because of their national communications networks and their their alliances with punks in Poland and so forth and then January 89 so less than a year before the wall falls they call punk the number one youth problem in the country so i mean they were absolutely obsessed with the with the punk scene and, and its capabilities in terms of um, making people s- sort of stridently anti-dictatorship, you know. There was, you know, I guess I should mention too that the message, there's something magical about the way they delivered the message, right? Not just the aggressive music, but the kind of simplicity. You were talking about the words and how it's not really like a wordy scene, you know. That was, that was definitely true and that was a strength for them. So other reform groups... I mean, other activist groups were seeking more what you might call like reform. You know, they were, let's change the environmental laws or let's get military training out of the schools. And the punks were like, fuck the system, let's destroy it. And that's, it, it was really effective, you know, especially for young people. Like, yeah, great, let's get involved in that. And so it, it really helped in terms of building the scene and keeping new blood coming in all the time was this really simple fundamental message that they had. Do you think if the Stasi completely ignored punk, they wouldn't have had the issue that they kind of created for themselves, whereabouts they've kind of made punk this enemy number one, whereabouts if they just allowed it to ride on, it would just be a kind of like what it was in Britain, whereabouts it was like an angry three years and then died out. Like, do you think that would have been the place? Or do you think it was so rooted? I don't know. It, it's really hard to say why they reacted that way at, at first, right? It's, I mean, again, because... I mean, I think a lot of the kids got into it just because it was cool and it was daring. It was typical teenage rebellion, and that, and that was cool. They wanted to be part of it. And a lot of them weren't initially that politically focused. And there were some who, right from the start, were kind of socialist anarchists, and they, and they preached the political side of punk and were savvy about that. But a lot of them were just in it for, for kicks, and they became politicized exactly like you're saying because of the reaction by the police you know they they and i think at that point they did realize oh you know what we're doing here it must actually be threatening it must actually be you know we're accomplishing something if the state reacts to me this way i'm doing something right you know i really am maybe i can affect change and i think that helped the belief in 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 the potential the uh, potential of the scene too was the way the police reacted and the stasi reacted 
in regards to um, other music genres, were any other yeah. music genres being treated in the same way that punk? Like, was jazz gang like the same shit as like punks? No, it's funny. Like hip hop, for instance, you know, yeah. which emerges not not long after, right? Hip hop was considered a legitimate sort of revolutionary art form. You know, that some of those early hip hop movies, like uh, Beat Street, had a cinematic release in East Germany. Mm. So, no, some of the other things that you would think would be stereotypically rebellious were not treated the same way. No. And I think part of it was um, the punk the punk look was really powerful. So there were other oppositional there was other oppositional art being made, people making poems or, or visual art that expressed opposition, but they didn't necessarily stand out in society. They could do their art and then walk down the street without it being relevant to their personhood, right? But the punks anytime somebody any anytime a punk walked down the street it was like, whoa, okay, that person obviously is oppositional. Mm. And so I think the Stasi saw that as that that aspect that was definitely threatening. That They were sort of almost, without having to do anything at all, they were expressing opposition. I mean, not in terms of they didn't have to be involved in a demonstration or they didn't have to be um, playing a show and, and delivering the message through the music in a church. Just walking down the street, they were already expressing some serious resistance, right? And I think that freaked them out. That freaked out the secret police. Uh. So, we've, we've, as we're recording this, we're nearly 30 years to the day yeah. that the Berlin Wall fell, um, brought, was brought down. Um, do you think that any music genre has the power to do what punk did for East Germany to contribute to bring down something like that wall that was such a, an object of Europe's split? Mm. I don't think that you can necessarily pass out guitars to 15-year-olds and say make anti-government music and, and have that cure whatever you think ills our current society. But I think the basic, the core sort of lesson, I mean, they, they created this handbook for resisting authoritarianism, right? And I think maybe the core aspect of that is there was some graffiti they used to spray up in East Berlin and it translated as um, don't die in the waiting room of the future which was this, I just love it, it's just this, this rallying cry against complacency, right? You can't just sit around hoping for change. you got to go out and make it happen, right? And I think that is still, that can be applied to other places and times, right? And, you know, whether the specific art form is applicable, I think that's an open question. Um, and I think one of the other unique aspects about this scene that you wouldn't find duplicated now is um, it was so uh, personal because you couldn't, you couldn't use the phones because they were... Uh, you know, listened in on. You couldn't send flyers or letters to people because they were read, especially if you were under surveillance. So everything had to be done directly face to face. They they had this thing they would they were called a whisper network. I mean, you, I told you, and you told your friend, and and that was the way they were able to get thousands of people to these events. Um, and that that creates a really really strong network. And then one of the reasons I think they were difficult to to break so to speak was because their network was really strong and it was so personal and even most of the concerts were relatively small scale too a lot of them would, they would only be talking to or, or singing or performing for a hundred or a couple hundred people so that you could really you're really looking in the eye of every member of the audience and delivering this message right so I think that that directly interpersonal kind of human aspect of the scene was a real strength and so if you compare that to things like Pussy Riot right where when they're I remember they're one of the performances that I, I first became aware of they were performing in an empty church and and it was supposed to be consumed by people 
um, via media and often in people in another country, right? So it's a really different approach from the, this super personal thing that the, the Eastern punks were doing. or I mean, they were forced to do, but would prove the strength. Yeah. I mean, because something that fascinates me in the same kind of world of this is punk in China because again it's another country whereabouts music is licensed for a government and you can't really power music without the government knowing about it but there is this thriving punk music in, uh, in, in China that seems to be finding its way it's very bootlegged and when I was when I was um, uh, researching your story it kind of brought me to that kind mm. of idea of Chinese punk and how they freedom of music will always find a way there's always going to be people who will resist because they have such a passion for a music genre it doesn't matter what a music genre is it just happens to be that my passion's punk so I look more into that and just as humans do you find it kind of like very simplistic that we can be inspired by just like music and words that they can just like it, it, it brings something deep down in us to go fuck you and then you really do it because it is I think if you explained it to like an alien that what music is and the power it has they'd be like what the fuck are you talking about like just I mean I I find it really heartening I guess I mean there was something magic about the the combination of their message and their music in in the east Um, you know people get so worked up sometimes at the shows that they would literally run out of the door of the church and start spraying up anti-government graffiti and that kind of thing so there was something magic there but the idea that uh, I mean this story this story it's what's the the right way to put it you know it's like um, this is a grassroots youth movement that actually succeeded right so the fact that you can affect that level of change through a music form I mean that that's that's exactly the story that I needed at least you know I knew I needed it back in the 90s and it became even more clear as I was doing the research which you know it took me about 10 years to work on this book and um, during that time, it went from this cool story that I was personally interested in into this thing that, you know, suddenly seemed much more important. Mm-hmm. Especially what's with we see what's happening in the states. You know, I would be researching a uh, Stasi operation to, um, you know, hinder a, a show or something, and then I walk, you know, look at the paper, and, and you see a police operation attacking Black Lives Matter or attacking those Dakota Pipeline activists. And you see in sort of the level of um, militarization of the police in the states, and the same thing with the mass surveillance. I'm reading about these these surveillance operations against these these activist uh, punks, and and then Snowden comes out with all this stuff about what's happening in the U.S. And suddenly this became a story that I thought even more relevant, almost frighteningly relevant. And so thank God they succeeded. You know, at least we have an example of of kids who who pulled it off. Mm. So just going to start wrapping up. I'm kind of interested to know about the people who who were there, who played their part, and where they are now. Like, are, are did a lot of them um, just pass away, or are do, like the people that you spoke to? How are they? Are they okay? Like, are they psychologically scarred from what happened to them? Are they still fighting the good fight? It's all over the map. I mean, uh, there's some who transitioned into the nightlife scene of the '90s, like the people that I met back then, and. There's some people involved in aspects of music. For the most part, the music changed pretty immediately after the fall of the wall. There was they realized that the music and the message was going to have to be different going forward because the situation was different. And um, there were a lot of them participating. A lot of them helped create that that magical um, '90s nightlife scene. That I think the ethos the ethos of East Punk it's, it still lives in that unique aspect of, of Berlin nightlife. You know, um, but specific people in the book, you know. 
Some of them do live relatively conventionalized now, um, and then there's there's uh, definitely a subset, like you mentioned, there's a subset of people who, I mean, the Stasi were just so effective at psychological torture, and if you had uh, extensive dealings with them or spent time in the Stasi prison, I mean, that, that definitely, it could leave scars, and there are, there are people who um, struggle with uh, sort of daily life, even to this day, as a result of that, that uh, battle with the Stasi um, but yeah there's no there's really no one answer mm. to that question uh, you know I, the, the only ones who went on to become well-known musicians are the guys from Rammstein who had been in a band called uh, Feeling Bay in the East let's kind of wrap up then with like your choice of people of East punk bands East German punk bands who people should probably check out if they can and find it yeah I mean it, you basically got, you're stuck looking at YouTube because they were never able to release this music officially but a lot has been uploaded so if you if you search for specific names and songs in the book you can find them usually on YouTube so there's a band called El Attentat A-T-T-E-N-T-A-T which means assassination um they did a record in the mid 80s that's really great uh and that's that's a remnant of an earlier band that had a lot of problems with the stasi two of their two of their singers went to jail and everything it's it's cool stuff um schleimkeim was a band uh formed in a pig stall in the southern part of east germany and they became it was obviously not a exactly a star type of culture i mean not only because they were anarchists but also because they had no access to media right but if there was anybody who sort of was anything like a star it was the it was the main guy in, in Schleimkeim and they actually produced quite a lot of music and that you can find on YouTube uh, he that guy um, Otze the, the singer from Schleimkeim he ended up um, dying in a, a, a mental institution after he killed his father with an axe uh, so you know that's indicative of some of the sort of problematic um, after effects of, of of these lives they led in the 80s but that music is is pretty phenomenal I mean you, you don't have to speak German to hear the revolutionary fervor uh, I like um, Namenlos that band I mentioned who went to prison for, for several years because of their lyrics and they have some decent recordings out there and they've even reissued some of their things same with Schleimkamp they've actually reissued a few of their things so if you look for Namenlos N-A-M-E-N LOS, you'll hear the stuff that they went to prison for. There's a song that compares the Stasi to Hitler's SS. There's another song that translates as Nazis back in East Berlin, also not appreciated by the regime. Um, yeah, so those those would be definitely th- a couple things to check out. Mate, thanks for the chat. I'm, I'm really looking forward to it. Yeah, thanks for the beer. Uh, my pleasure. <laughs> and uh, yeah, uh, enjoy the rest of your tour, mate, in Germany, and uh, I wish you all the best. Thanks a lot, mate. Thank you to Tim for taking the time to talk to me. Go pick up his book, Burning Down the Haas. It's an, it's be an excellent Christmas gift for anyone who's into that kind of thing, especially punk history. I'm currently reading it, and I'm uh, I'm quite I'm enjoying it. I'm a slow reader, uh, but I'm I'm enjoying it. There's enough pictures for me to enjoy it. And there are a few links uh, to some of the bands that Tim spoke about in the bio of this episode. Don't forget, if you want to sponsor this podcast, you don't have to be a band. You can be an artist, a poet, a shirt designer. I want you to sponsor the podcast for 
you're completely free. All you need to do is create an MP3 uh, recording, either on your phone or if you're fancy, you can go into a studio if you like, and then email it over to punksinpubs at gmail.com. Right, that's it. Please go rate and review the podcast and don't be a prick. Go vote for the podcast. And I'll see you in a few weeks for our Christmas special. Until then, if you go into a punk show and you see someone fall down, you pick them right back up again. I love you. Bye-bye.